Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a fourth-year graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study transients and the galaxies they come from. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. And I'm Melina Rice. I'm a fifth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. You're listening to episode 48, the Astrophysical Merry-Go-Round in which we explore the different ways in which rotation shapes our universe. As we've seen in previous episodes, learning more about an object's rotation can reveal many of its other characteristics. Rotation can be used to derive the location of a star along an evolutionary track, to characterize pulsars, and even to map out the distribution of invisible dark matter in a galaxy. We figured it was time to devote an entire episode to rotation, so let's hold on to our chairs and spin up this introduction. <laughs> Milena, Will, how common is rotation in the universe? Oh gosh, Alex, it's everywhere. Everything's <laughs> rotating. And in fact, it's hard to think of things that aren't rotating. Because hmm. even the things that you're like, oh, maybe it's not rotating so much. No, no, no. It is rotating. You just don't realize. I looked it up and the universe itself is not rotating. So if that's reassuring in any way. <laughs> <laughs> how, how can we know that? <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> yeah, the only, I guess that's the only thing then perhaps that is truly not rotating. But rotation is super common because of conservation of angular momentum. We've discussed this a lot, but as a reminder, as long as you have any tiny amount of rotation of a large object, as the object gets smaller, it has to spin faster to conserve angular momentum. It has to spin up. Just like a figure skater with her arms outstretched, spinning slowly, pulls in her arms and spins really, really fast. It's the same idea, but all it takes is a little bit of rotation when you're big to translate to a lot of rotation when you're small. So a lot of the small things in the universe are super fast rotators because of this. Another useful point to mention about rotation is it results in stability. Orbits are stabilized because of rotation. You get resonances because of orbits and rotation that apply to objects like planets, apply to disks, can apply to stars, and it allows planetary systems to become more stable. Can you explain how it allows stability? I would think that added motion would make something more unstable. Sure. Well, let me give you an example. When you have a moon orbiting a planet, if the moon is tidally locked, that is that it rotates at the same rate it revolves, so the same face of the moon faces the planet, it stabilizes the moon's rotation and it stabilizes the planet's obliquity, which is exactly what happens for the Earth-Moon system. It results in a longer-term dynamic time scale, so the Earth-Moon system will evolve over billions of years. But if you didn't have those rotational locking, the tidal locking that is caused by rotation, it'd be less stable for both parties. Hmm. But even still, there is a more stable configuration. And that would be if the moon orbited at the same rate the Earth rotated. So if the day equaled one lunar month, 
which is actually true about Pluto and its moon Charon, that's the most stable moon planet configuration you can get. And in that case, the locking of the rotation for both bodies means it will be stable for much, much longer than our moon will be. Interesting. You mentioned that rotation is very, very common in the universe. How do we even know that? How are we able to determine whether an object is rotating or not? So the first thing for me, at least, that comes to mind is spectra and using spectral features of the object. So, for example, to figure out Hmm. how quickly galaxies are rotating, we can map out the hydrogen alpha line across the galaxy to see if it's blue shifted on one side and red shifted on the other as a result of the Doppler effect, and we can use that to figure out the rate of rotation. Another way to do that for galaxies, again, is to measure the 21 centimeter hydrogen emission line. So the Doppler shift causes this line to actually become double pronged because of the blue shifted and red shifted components of the galaxy. And you can use that to figure out the galaxy's rotation speed. For stars, uh, this is something I actually do in my research, is we see some rotational broadening in their spectra based on how quickly they're spinning. So the absorption lines in the stars are narrower for slowly spinning stars, and they're broader for faster spinning stars. And that's the same Doppler effect that we're seeing, where you have kind of a slower spinning component and a faster spinning component that just cause the line to be a little bit more spread out. Hmm. Do rotating objects spin more rapidly at the beginning or the ends of their lives? Yeah, this depends on a lot of different factors, and specifically it really depends on the external forces that are acting on the object. So, for example, black holes spin really close to the speed of light because there's so much mass that's fallen into such a small space, and they can gain material over time, which actually causes them to spin up. Stars, on the other hand, tend to spin down over time because of magnetic Hmm. breaking, where the stars lose angular momentum due to their magnetic fields interacting with the stellar wind, I guess. I I wanted to say solar wind, but it would be stellar for other stars. Um, But it's also not quite Hmm. that simple, Hmm. where if you consider the dynamics of these systems as well, and for example, if you have a binary star system, then it'll continually shift towards equilibrium. And that equilibrium for a binary star system is generally characterized by coplanar circular orbits, where the rotation periods of the stars are the same as their orbital period. So kind of like how the most stable configuration for the Earth-Moon system would be if the Moon was rotating at the same rate as it was orbiting the Earth. And exactly how that state is reached and whether a stable Mm -hmm. equilibrium point even exists at all for a given system depends a lot on the ratio of orbital to rotational angular momentum that exists in that system. So the way that you get this evolution is going to be very like system by system different. It's not going to be the same for every single system. It's interesting the tight connection, it seems, between stability and rotation. It seems like things migrate toward greater stability based on their rotation rates. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a good pattern to note. Yeah. Another example of that is mean motion resonances, where when you get planets that reach these resonant orbits, where, for example, one will orbit three times for every two times another planet orbits, then they end up in this sort of resonant locking where I think it's their orbital periods that oscillate kind of like a simple harmonic oscillator right around this like exact period. Hmm. And so they sort of oscillate right around this very stable location and don't leave it because they're sort of trapped into this particular resonant configuration over long time scales. So it really helps to keep the system pretty predictable over pretty long time scales. These resonances create local minima in the Mm. energy functions of the orbiting bodies. 
So the same thing happens with galaxies. An orbital configuration will have a resonance, and then around the resonance, you'll have some oscillation. So it's basically about the lowest possible energy, like Milena said, the simple harmonic oscillator wants to be sort of in the neutral position, but given any offset, it'll just oscillate around that. Right. It's the same sort of idea. It's the it's the lowest energy you can get for the system where it wants to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they overshoot it a little bit in one direction and then try to compensate and exactly. overshoot a little bit in the other direction. But they're trapped. They don't jump out of the well into another local minimum that's higher in energy because right. the well is too deep. They're still trapped within it. Interesting. Okay, next question. What's the fastest spinning object that we know of and the slowest? So the fastest spinning one was actually created in January 2020. This is not a space object. This is a silicon dioxide nanoparticle that was driven to 300 billion revolutions per minute. (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah, I know. Um, By applying a laser to the particle that was levitated within a vacuum. So whoa, what a sentence. Just think about <laughs> think about the engineering feat that that represents. Yeah. <laughs> was this in pursuit of a different research project or was their goal to spin it as fast as possible? <laughs> I think their goal was to be able to measure something spinning that fast. Huh. It was sort of in pursuit of something else, but really it was kind of to get something spinning as fast as possible and then be able to actually tell that it is. Wow. I can imagine them sitting in the lab thinking, all right, in order to measure something that fast, we need something spinning that fast. <laughs> where, where do we go from here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So pretty cool project. That's amazing. Okay. And then the slowest? Well, so I think the slowest spinning object is probably a galaxy that would take about a billion years to rotate. Hmm. hmm. That's an average for galaxies. Some will be faster, some will be slower. But the universe is 14 billion years old. So, you know, that's about the slowest rotation that, that could have happened. Sure, yeah. So if so if you're measuring your birthdays in galactic years, you're going to have to wait a while to blow out those candles. Right. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. When you Google slowest rotating thing in the universe, you don't get a lot of results. <laughs> okay, last question before we jump into the astrobites. At large scales, systems tend to have zero net charge, even if the charges are imbalanced at small scales. So it's a small scale phenomenon. Is the same true for rotation that you mainly see it at small scales and at larger scales, things seem typically more stationary? No. Cool. Let's jump into the astrobites. <laughs> but it is a good, it is a good question. <laughs> this idea that we don't see charges in the universe, or we don't see lots of electric or lots of charge gathered in one place because they cancel out. On average, things are neutral. So on average, wouldn't things be unrotating? And that's not true. It's not true because charge is conserved. And angular momentum is conserved. So if you want to draw an equivalency, you have to draw between those two things. Mm -hmm. And on average, we don't see angular momentum in the universe. We see it all cancels out. Some is going this way, some momentum that way. And on average, it'll, it'll cancel out. But rotation is not a conserved quantity because when you get smaller, you rotate faster. So when you compare charge to rotation, you're drawing a false equivalency, which is why it seems like it doesn't make sense. But actually... It, it sort of does, because angular momentum is the thing that you cannot impart into the universe, just like hmm. you can't impart charge. The total that was there when the universe was created is the total that will be there. You can have it created in 
pairs, right? We have a positive and a negative and then separate them. And it looks like you've created charge, but you really haven't overall. Same with angular momentum. It can change form, but not change quantity. Okay, so we've learned a little bit about how important rotation is, and now I think Will's going to bring us an astrobite on how rotation can weigh in on a debate that's been going on for almost 400 years. <laughs> yeah, we're, we'll get there. There's going to be a little bit of a spool up, so hang on. <laughs> sure. <laughs> this astrobite is called Galaxies in More Crowded Environments Rotate Slower, Implications for Gravity. This is a guest post written by Ingenil Banik, who is a postdoc with a Humboldt postdoctoral research position at the University of Bonn. And the paper was written by Che and others, published in the Astrophysical Journal in 2020. We all start learning about physics by learning Newton's gravitation. And the way Newton described gravity is an invisible force that attracts objects with mass. Okay, that makes sense. We use F equals MA. We use... Newton's three laws, we can solve these problems. An important piece of Newtonian gravitation is this idea of superposition. So you can sum up the gravities from different objects, and they add. They also can subtract. They cancel out if they're going in opposite directions. And this makes sense. One simple example is how the tides on Earth respond to the sun and the moon's gravity. So they add up. Sometimes they cancel and you get a neap tide. Sometimes they add and you get a spring tide. But it turns out the next thing we learn is that Newton was wrong. Not in ways that matter to most of us in our daily lives, but in ways that matter to the universe. So Einstein came along and put together a new theory. General relativity. It's his crowning achievement. It's a much better theory to describe the universe than Newtonian gravity. And in general relativity, briefly, gravity is not a force. It's actually a consequence of the fact that mass warps space-time. Einstein created this idea if we put space and time together and think about them as the same thing, we can see how they operate and mass, for whatever reason, and it's not quite known, creates a distortion. And so things that were traveling in straight lines now look like they travel on curved lines because the space itself is warped. And that's gravity. So that, that's the overview of what general relativity is. So then how does rotation fit into all of this? Oh, we're not even close, Alex. Hold your horses, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get there. Now, one of the interesting pieces of general relativity is Einstein's equivalence principle. The equivalence principle states that gravity is the same as acceleration. It's actually that inertial mass and gravitational mass are the same thing. But that's kind of a confusing idea. So let's give you an example. If you are on Earth, you experience the force of gravity. 9.8 meters per second squared is acceleration of gravity on Earth's surface. If instead you're in deep space away from Earth and on a spaceship that's accelerating at 9.8 meters per second squared, you'll feel gravity as if you were standing on Earth. In fact, an observer in space and an observer on the ground cannot tell the difference between the two events. They're equivalent. That's the equivalence principle. Unless they look outside the window, right? Yeah, you have to be blindfolded for this experiment. <laughs> yeah, got it. Many of Einstein's thought experiments require a blindfold, so just be advised. The next and a little bit more complicated piece is called the strong equivalence principle. So hang on to your seats. The strong equivalence principle states that the result of an experiment in a freely falling laboratory, which is a fancy way of saying something that's acted on by gravity only, is independent of its velocity 
and location in space-time. So what that means is an internal system cannot be impacted by external forces. Here's an example. The solar system is moving in the Milky Way. So if we were to go and measure how the solar system is accelerating relative to the Milky Way, the gravitational fields of the other galaxies cannot impact our measurement. It cannot be dependent on their gravitational fields. Another way of saying this is that the gravitational constant, big G, has to be constant everywhere in the universe. Uh, okay. That one, yeah. <laughs> Right with you. Yeah. All right. So we got you there. Third third time's a charm. So if you can do a test where you show that internal workings of a system change based on external gravity applied, then you break general relativity. It no longer works as Einstein defined it. And this may be the kookiest part of general relativity I've ever heard of. In fact, I was shocked to learn that this is a, a theory and in fact, a rigorous theory, but it is. How do you actually test this? Rotation. Now we're at rotation. <laughs> okay, okay. So we've, we made it. All right. Deep breaths, everybody. <laughs> All right. We're making it through. All right. Rotation is the theme of the episode. So let's do a little rotation. Um, I said earlier that galaxies rotate in about a billion years. This makes them a decent way of testing general relativity because... Any small differences in gravity would accumulate over a billion years rotation, and the velocity would change a lot, measurably a lot, for the stars in the galaxy over one orbital period. It's possible to figure out the orbital acceleration of stars in a galaxy if you measure their velocity, which we can do, right, with the Doppler effect with spectra. And this study used 153 rotating galaxies. What they were looking for is whether or not external gravitational fields from other galaxies would impact the rotation of the galaxies being studied. So you could see whether or not the galaxies were in a strong external field or a weak external field and see if that impacts how they accelerate. How would that look different? So how would you know what the galaxy would look like if it wasn't versus was in this field? So there are two ways they did this. The first is to do a self-comparison. So they just look at the galaxy's rotation curve and they see which model fits the rotation curve better. One that has external fields being a relevant factor and general relativity does not work as it should or one that says general relativity works as it should the external fields are not a factor. And then another one is to compare them between the different observations, doing their best to adjust based on the different characteristics of the galaxies. Will, what is a rotation curve? Absolutely good question. A rotation curve is a plot of the velocity versus distance from the center of a galaxy. Galaxy rotation curves are a complicated topic because they don't behave as you might expect by looking at the visible light. They are remarkably flat. That is, once you get a little bit away from the center of a galaxy, as you keep going further and further away, the stars rotate at the same speed. Not the same period, but the same speed. And that doesn't really make sense. There's not enough visible light matter to create that rotation curve, which is part of this whole situation. But the important piece here is they were trying to see whether or not external fields change galaxy rotation rates. And they did 153, so it's a big sample size, 
and a pretty thorough analysis, the most thorough of this effect ever done. And what did they find? They found that, in fact, the galaxies do rotate slower if they're in a strong external field. So that means the external field changes the gravity, actually increases the gravity, such that things rotate slower. And they also found within an individual galaxy, the rotation curves better fits a model where external fields do matter and general relativity is wrong. So it's a piece of evidence showing that general relativity breaks down, in fact. How different do these models look if you have the external fields versus not? So how, how discrepant is the data with the models that just don't have this external field? I spent about 20 minutes staring at the plots trying to see if they're different. <laughs> I couldn't tell that they're different. However, the model fitting parameters did identify a different fit quality. So this it is rigorous. They did use the state-of-the-art fitting techniques and... The models that include external fields do, in fact, fit better. But it's not a smoking gun. But the implications, if taken directly, would suggest that general relativity is wrong, that we need something else to explain galaxy rotation? Correct. And let's be very clear where it's wrong. This is only true if you have very weak acceleration. Because these objects rotate so slowly, there isn't a ton of acceleration. And that's the case where general relativity might break down. Now, we've actually known about this for a long time. This may be the best study, but it's not even close to the first. And the hmm. most widely accepted solution to this is called dark matter halo. And many listeners are going to think, well, every galaxy has dark matter at the center. Well, this is well-believed, but not 100% proven. There are still some people, some very high-level astronomers, who do not believe that dark matter halos exist or that dark matter does not exist. If every galaxy has a cloud of dark matter around the center in a sort of a big ball, it solves this problem. But if that's not true, and there is evidence to suggest it's not true, there are modifications to general relativity and Newtonian dynamics that fix the problem. It's not accepted by most astronomers. The most common is called MOND, or Modified Newtonian Dynamics. But it is a, it is a theory, and there is a lot of research being done on it. And at that point, I guess you would also have to worry about how fine-tuned the new model you're building is based on this one particular case. That is a, a very serious problem, yes. It's a very contentious theory. There are a lot of people who say there's no way it's possibly true, and a lot of diehards who really do believe that despite the evidence, they will prove Mond to be real. Will, what do you personally believe about Mond? Don't answer that. Because it's time for our bi-weekly rotation radio for binary characterization and modified gravity. Yay! What did you think? First thing that came to mind was Stravinsky. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, That's a compliment. So this is a sonification, and that means they did it well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clearly a sonification. Mm-hmm. I definitely heard some pops, some sort of short notes, and then some longer notes. So my guess would be it's a sonification of an image where you have stars as the short notes and then some gas or extended features as the long notes. Yeah, I think it would have to be an image because the the short notes were also not all that similar to each other. So it wouldn't necessarily be like a periodic light curve or anything like that. So you both are right on the money. This is indeed the sonification of an image. Yay. It's a sonification of observations taken of the innermost region of the Crab Nebula. Ooh. And Ooh. it's a composite image consisting of x-rays from Chandra Observatory as the brass instruments, optical data from Hubble as the stringed instruments, and infrared data from Spitzer as the woodwinds. Lovely. For this sonification, volume corresponds to the intensity of the emission, and the pitch corresponds to the position in the image, high or low. So... You can hear that main portion of the sonification go from kind of lower pitch to higher pitch as it scales upward. That's due to a jet of material flowing outward in either direction at the center of the Crab Nebula from a highly magnetized neutron star. And the reason why I've included this as the space sound for today's episode is because that neutron star at the center of the Crab Nebula is rotating 30 times a second. It's a very fast rotator, maybe not as fast as the experiment you alluded to at the beginning of the episode, Melina. (laughs) but astrophysically speaking it's pretty fast and the team that did the sonification of course our good friends over at system sounds who we now have to thank for a good number of our space sounds at this point all of alex's it seems (laughs) (laughs) i should just start going to that website we should have them on the show we should have them on the show all right well thank you for that space sound that's really pretty yeah thanks alex yeah it's beautiful (laughs) i'll send the link around please do okay so The thought of modified gravity is still kind of making my head spin, but I'm hoping that nobody else listening has gotten lost along the way. But if you have, you're in good company because Malena is here to teach us that stars have a few stragglers of their own. Oh, I thought you were saying that I was lost and I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Because Malena has been struggling in this episode. I wasn't going to say anything, but... I've just been vibing. (laughs) (laughs) All right, what do you have for us, Molina? So my astrobite is about a paper by Liner et al. from 2019, and it's called Blue Lurkers and Blue Stragglers, Rapidly Rotating Stars and Their Fountain of Youth. It's a guest post by Catherine Manea, who's actually now a regular writer at Astrobytes. So we've actually talked about at least one or two of her bites on past episodes. I like Catherine's writing. Congrats, Catherine. (laughs) Yeah, so she started out as a guest writer and then became a non-guest writer. So I guess that's something that any of you aspiring science writers could do as well. (laughs) Nice. All right. Tell us about blue stragglers and blue lurkers, Molina. Yeah, so we're going to need to start out with some definitions so that we can better understand that title. Um, So blue straggler stars are main sequence stars in stellar clusters that appear much younger, so that is much more luminous and bluer than stars at the main sequence turnoff of the cluster. So blue lurkers then are just the low mass end of the blue stragglers. And the reason that it's weird to have these types of stars and they have their own specific name is because stellar clusters are groups of stars that were all born at roughly the same time. So they should all actually have just about the same age. 
but the blue straggler stars appear to be younger than the other stars around them. Now, you might ask, okay, how do we know their ages and how can we tell that they look younger? We normally determine stellar ages by fitting something called an isochrone to a color magnitude diagram. So that's basically a stellar evolutionary model fit to a plot that shows color or temperature on the x-axis and magnitude or brightness on the y-axis. And the blue stragglers would just require a younger isochrone to fit the models than all the other stars in the cluster. So you have the model that everything seems to fit except for these weird blue stragglers that are just sort of off to the side and they look like they would need a younger model to fit them. Even if a population of stars were all born right around the same time, there's still probably a distribution of their ages, right? Distribution about kind of a central value. So does it seem like these objects are at the extrema of this distribution, or is there something fundamentally different about how they form? It looks like there's something that is fundamentally different, because there is going to be some distribution. So not all the stars form in exactly the same second, but they're not going to be, say, like billions of years apart in age. They're all going to be pretty, like, roughly the same age, at least within the measurement uncertainties that we have. Mm-hmm. So do the authors propose different potential theories for how the blue lurkers might form? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this kind of gets the question of what these other stars are. Are these, like, younger stars that got captured into the stellar cluster somehow, or did something else happen? And it turns out that the leading theory right now is actually that those stars were born at the same time as their neighbors, but they just look younger because of their interactions with neighboring stars. And we know this because they're found most often in the highest density parts of globular clusters. So it looks like blue stragglers are actually the result of mergers from two intermediate mass stars. And so they create one massive bluer star that just looks a bit different than if it was just hmm. a single star born alone. So they're not actually younger. They just look younger? Yeah. So they, they end up having slightly different properties because they're actually just a merged set of two stars as opposed to one star. And there are a couple of different characteristics that cause them to look different. So again, they're going to be at a different spot on the color magnitude diagram. Uh, they're going to be, you know, slightly different mass than if they had just been individual stars, different luminosity. And then in addition to that, they're also going to have different rotational properties. So again, this astrobite is focusing specifically on the blue lurkers. And instead of a merger of intermediate mass stars, those are instead created by merging low mass stars. So they make an intermediate mass star, and they're actually not so easy to pick out from the color magnitude diagram. They just end up blending in with all the other stars because they still fit within the color magnitude diagram of the normal stars. Because when you merge the stars, they just end up looking bluer. But if you start with smaller stars, then they can just be shifted to within the population of the other stars within the cluster as well. So this is kind of along the lines of the question that I was going to ask, which is that if you have two low mass stars that merge and they form an object from this population, do those new objects kind of leapfrog to a different position and assume the same evolutionary track as a single larger star? Or is there something in their evolution that can allow you to distinguish between those objects and just the single bigger stars? So the ones that we're looking at here are still on the main sequence. So I'm not sure actually what happens once they leave the main sequence. It might be a little bit different. Hmm. But while they're on the main sequence, it basically just makes them look a little bit bluer. So it shifts them left. 
and that's the, that's actually the main consequence besides also this rotational change so the blue stragglers are actually pretty easy to pick out you can just look at the color magnitude diagram and there are some stars that are just kind of scattered to the left of the main sequence turnoff and you just say oh those are some weird outliers they look like blue stragglers <laughs> the blue lurkers are tricky because they just blend in with all the other stars at least if you just look at the color magnitude diagram so if you want to actually pick them out and see what are these outlier stars within our sample, then you, what you need to look at is the rotation rates. And you can look at all the rotation rates sort of around that main sequence turnoff and see if you can find any outliers that appear to be rotating a lot faster than the normal stars. What would cause them to be rotating more quickly? Is this again a consequence of conservation of angular momentum as they merge? Yeah, so it's it's just that when they merge, the it's kind of, again, like the ice skater pulling in their arms. You have more mass kind of being compacted to a smaller area, and so they end up spinning up. And actually, normally stars spin down over time, so there's kind of an even more significant difference between a merged star versus these other stars that have been there for a little while and then have spun down slowly because of magnetic breaking that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. So the authors here were looking for this signal in the M67 cluster. They were just looking to see what blue lurkers they could find. And most sun-like stars in M67 should rotate with periods of around 20 to 30 days. So they were just looking for objects that spin faster than that, basically. And there are two different methods that they used. They first used Lom-Skargle periodograms to search for periodic signals in the light curves of the stars. This is sort of like a, a take on the Fourier transform, basically. And these periodograms were using data from the K2 mission. So the idea here is that if there are spots on these stars, those star spots should show up periodically. If they're kind of long-lasting, you see the same spot over and over as the star rotates. And so the rotation period should show up as a periodic signal because the star spot pattern is repeating. That's kind of clever to use star spots as a way to measure the rotation period of a star. Yeah, and it's a little tricky because these long sparkle periodograms are a little noisy and there are a lot of periodic things that can be happening with stars. But it's certainly one of the main ways that you can use, and then it's helpful to also have other potential methods to check. I've used this method in my own research, and indeed, it is hard to interpret and hard to use. Yeah. If one of these stars had a planet orbiting it whose orbital period didn't match the rotational period of the star, would that get confused for a sunspot? Yeah, so that's something that you would certainly have to check and account for, because Lomb-Skargle periodograms are also used to look for planets sometimes, usually with radial velocity data as opposed to with transit data. But if you did have like a really deep transit that periodically occurred, then that would show up as a signal in your Lomb-Skargle periodogram. So you would also have to just check to make sure there isn't something obvious that you're missing there, like planets transiting. With that said, transiting planets are not necessarily, at least the ones that are large enough to create a really significant signal in this type of data set, they're not that common, and you'd probably be able to see fairly easily if they were there. Um, I know there is at least one exoplanet scientist in the first few authors of this paper, so they probably did check that. And then in addition to the Lomb-Skargle periodograms, they also studied the line widths of the stars to learn about the rotation. So we mentioned before that the line widths are going to be 
narrower for stars that are rotating more slowly and they're broader for more quickly rotating stars. And this is something that's measured through V sine I, which is the radial component of the star's velocity relative to the observer. That's the component that we can actually see in this line of sight direction. So they used both of these together and they ended up finding 11 stars with rotation periods less than 15 days around the main sequence turnoff out of about 400 main sequence stars in the cluster. Those 11 objects appear to be blue lurkers that we've been talking about. Again, pretty similar to blue stragglers, but just lower in mass. And the authors found that about 3% of stars that appear to be normal main sequence stars, you know, just sort of on the surface are actually blue lurkers. So that's pretty important to take into consideration when you're just trying to deal with like your normal star sample, just be aware that there is contamination from these types of stars in there as well. And it's actually not that insignificant. 3% is a fairly large number, I would say, uh, depending on how precise you're going, but it's pretty important. I'm surprised it's that high. I would have thought it'd be much rarer to get uh, star mergers, but I guess not. Yeah, I mean, most stars form in multi-star systems, right? So maybe it's not that shocking, but... Yeah, it, it does seem kind of high. And especially if you'd expect way more low-mass objects, low-mass binaries than high-mass binaries, then the blue lurkers, maybe maybe that makes sense. Maybe 3% is, is about right. Mm-hmm. They're sneaky. They're lurking. They're lurking, yeah. Everybody, everybody watch out. This is your warning message. <laughs> well, thanks, Molly, for that astrobite. And I think it's time for our one-sentence summaries. So why don't we kick it off with you, Melina? Blue stragglers, which are likely formed from merger events between low-mass stars, can sneakily hide among the regular color magnitude diagram with only a rapid rotation signature distinguishing them from single stars. Nice. And Will, what's your one-sentence summary? If dark matter doesn't exist, then there must be some other way to improve theories of gravitation due to the observations of the rotation rates of galaxies. Awesome. Straight to the point. I like it. We have a couple of minutes for discussion. So I'm wondering what observational biases are there associated with traditional rotation measurements? Is it something rife with uncertainty or can you pin it down pretty easily? Yeah. So as we mentioned, it, it kind of depends on the method. But as we mentioned, the star spots, for example, there are a lot of potential periodic signals that you might see. Like if you try to look for any kind of signal with, for example, a year period, then that's just the Earth's orbital period. So you end up with like weird errors within your data at exactly that period. And you have to sort of take into account both what is happening in our system that is going to also be picked up by the detector, just periodic signals within the solar system and the orbit of whatever instrument you're looking at, if it's a satellite, as well as potential uncertainties within the actual data set and the actual object that you're looking at. So something like a lomb scargle periodogram, you have to be really careful about understanding what all the different peaks mean. You'll usually see quite a few peaks and you have to kind of understand, oh, this one is related to the Earth, this one's related to maybe the actual star, and rule out through process of elimination what could actually be the signal that you're looking for, um, and also make sure that it's significant enough. So there are certainly a lot of potential sources of confusion with photometry. I think spectroscopy is maybe a little bit more robust, I would say, because there aren't as many complicating factors, at least that come immediately to mind. But it's 
ideal to have both. Ideally, you'd have multiple checks for your rotation periods. Sure, sure. What role does rotation play in the evolution of an astrophysical object? Is it inconsequential or does it change everything about a system if it's rapidly rotating? I would say it changes everything. I think rotation might be one of the dominant pieces in how an object could evolve. I gave the example at the start of the episode of the Earth and Moon system. If these were rotating slightly differently, it would change the entire history of our planet because the moon stabilizes Earth's obliquity, so it doesn't change the tilt more than a few degrees. Mars has no large moon and changes its tilt wildly. It happens to be similar to Earth's right now, but it goes all over the place, which results in unpredictable changes in global climate. You know, we've talked about in the past how a small change in obliquity can mean a huge change on Earth of climate conditions. On Mars, it's like that times 20. No life could evolve under those sorts of circumstances without the moon. So it's just one example. Another example I would say is magnetic fields because star rotations cause the stellar magnetic field to get bunched and tangled in a way that can only be relieved by stellar storms and coronal mass ejections, which, you know, expand then out into the solar system and can impact Earth, can impact the other planets, uh, changes the entire dynamics of the solar system plasma environment. Also, the sun's rotation dictates the way that the sun's magnetic field behaves at the edge of the solar system because magnetic fields are sort of dragged along with rotation. So, well, these, these are all solar system examples, so maybe not the best, but <laughs> I think it changes everything. I think rotation is so important. Yeah, I was going to say, if a galaxy rotated like twice as fast, would it really matter? I don't know. No, probably not. It probably depends on what time scale you actually care about, because if you're thinking about life, then it doesn't matter if you go from a billion to two billion. <laughs> it's just like, oh, that's fine. But... If you're looking at smaller things like planets and their rotation periods and how even tilting things differently or having them rotate slightly differently would affect life, then that's actually a big deal. So maybe on larger scales it matters less, but I don't do galaxies, so (laughs) I don't know. I mean, maybe if you asked a galaxy astronomer, they would say, oh, it's so important. Large scale structure of the universe and all that. Well, I did you know, point out in my astrobite how galaxy rotation curves are evidence potentially of dark matter. I mean, it's with a slightly different rotation curve, we end up with a different amount of dark matter, perhaps that changes the entire fabric of the universe where like about a quarter of the universe's energy is from dark matter. That would not be true if the rotation curves were different. We might infer a third or a half of dark matter or possibly less. So... (laughs) So the degree to which we are confused would just vary a little bit. <laughs> well, some someone someday will understand all of this and, and then it will matter. Right now, it's sort of just nonsense, but yes. <laughs> but it seems to matter at the smaller scales. Mm-hmm. It definitely matters. We just don't understand how it matters. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it, dear listeners. So as you wake up tomorrow morning and you're going through the list of all the things that you're grateful for that day, your grandparents, a new song you just heard, the sunset, add this to your list, the rotation of astrophysical bodies. (laughs) (laughs) That concludes episode 48, the astrophysical merry-go-round. 
If you'd like to read either of the two astrobytes we talked about today, check out the links in the show notes. If you don't know what the internet is, but you still somehow managed to find this episode that you're listening to right now, I have great <laughs> news for you. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. You probably <laughs> knew that already. You can always send us an email at astrosoundbites at gmail.com. We do parties and events as well, but we haven't yet gotten any calls. Thanks for listening. And don't forget. Do we? <laughs> we could. I'm open to it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. I'm going to need a raise. Ha, 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 ha.